Good morning again. Well, as you, uh, if, if you come here regularly, you'll know we're up to 1 Peter 5. The reason you can tell that is not the gift of prophecy, but just we, we were on chapter 4 last week, so we're on chapter 5 this week. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, as some of you know, I was at this weird thing Anglicans do called a synod, which is just a parliament. And uh, if you're interested in what happened, to get an honest thing, what happened, I, I'm a witness. So that's interesting. But of course, I missed parts of it. Um, and also, I'm not in the centre of it. I, I noticed a friend of mine called Red Taylor, Andrew Taylor, some of you all know, good bloke, minister up at uh, Gungarland. He was sitting on the top table with the bishops and Carol and, and all those heavy-duty people. So if you really wanted to know the inside story of what was going on, Red would be a good guy to talk to. And we're in that sort of situation when it comes to Jesus. Lots and lots and lots and lots of people tell you what Jesus is really about. Uh, but the question is, not, what do those who are actually with him for three full years, day and night, day and night, they didn't just sort of you know, work with him nine to five. They're sort of camping out for those three years. So obviously what people like the Apostle Peter say and the Apostle John, that's really significant, isn't it? Because they were with him. Uh, and this is what we have. In 1 Peter, we have a letter from someone who was with Jesus for those years. So it's always good for us to come back and think, how, how do those who are closest to Jesus, who've been influenced by him to the point that, well, all of them except John were put to death for following him, what do they say about the realities of God and Christian life? And we're here at the end of his letter, uh, chapter 5. We're going to do a little bit more next week and then wrap round to the whole letter. And I think that'll be different and fun. But let's pray that as we listen to not just the word of Peter, which it is, which is significant enough. I mean, imagine if Peter was here speaking. I think you wouldn't need that extra cup of coffee before you came to church to pay attention, would you? To actually have him. But it's more than that. It's the Holy Spirit who works in him and through him. Let's pray that we would hear God's voice. Father in heaven, please... Help us to be good listeners, uh, not to me, but to your truth through your word. Please guide me in what I say and don't say, and please make this morning uh, life transforming for each one of us. We pray this, Father, through Jesus and for his honour. Amen. Well, we're going to look at this chapter 5 that you heard so well read for us, and I hope you've got it in front of you in some form or other. Um, we're going to listen to a final word to the sheep and then a wise command for the sheep and then a crucial insight for the sheep. Um, the sheep are us. Sorry about that. You know that I'm not too keen on sheep. If I had to have a family emblem, I would not have a sheep on it. Uh, maybe a picture of me eating sheep. That would be possible. That's what they're good for. But the Bible has this insistence right the way through from the first books of the Bible, the very first book, right to the end, that we are constantly paralleled as sheep. And one of the marks, if you're a genuine Christian, is that you're happy enough to be called a sheep, and you're happy enough to be called a sheep because that's what God calls you. Right? And if God says there's something really sheepish about you and I, uh, it would be a foolish person to ignore that. But what this book says, he, he says in verse Verse 1, I urge the elders among you as your fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, one who is a fellow partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. So we're the, the flock of God. We 
talked in chapter 2, he talked about who the church is as this temple of living stones built together and working as a place to honour God and to do good to the world. Here it describes just again, as the Bible often does, as a flock of sheep. Here noting not just you're personally a sheep and he's your shepherd, the good shepherd who died for you, but there's a weeness about it. And you know this from all sorts of other areas. Our culture is probably unhelpfully obsessed with the I-ness in all sorts of areas rather than the we-ness. That, that, that there's, there's an us-ness about it. So the final word is to the flock and the care of the flock. That's us. Uh, in Psalm 100, it's a beautiful, it's a much-loved psalm from the Old Testament, a song. It says of God, we're, we're to make a joyful noise to God. Why? It is he that made us. We're his. We're his flock. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Jesus, as you heard, talks about himself as the good shepherd and his people are the sheep who listen to his voice that he cares for and dies for. They're very valuable sheep. And earlier in this letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, in this magnificent statement, it says of Jesus, by his wounds you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but you've now returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So we are his flock. And there's a group of people who are told to shepherd it. Who are these people? Therefore, I urge the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ. Now, someone, hang on, hang on. Did Peter, was, he really, was Peter really a witness of the suffering of Christ? Was he really there at the cross? Well, we don't know. But if you think the suffering of Christ was only Good Friday, no, he suffered all, all sorts of ways uh, before that. But I think he was probably at the cross. We don't know. We're not told. So it's, therefore, it's not important. He certainly betrayed Jesus. Well, he deserted him. But he had repented and wept and was a broken man on the Thursday night. I would think the likelihood is that he would have uh, looked on from a distance. He's not named. John's named. Mary, the mother of Jesus, named. Some of the other Marys are named. But I presume he was probably there. But he speaks. It's interesting that Peter doesn't go, as an apostle. He says, as a fellow elder. Right? He just relates to those who are the elders here. Now, what does he mean by elder? There are three groups he talks about here. Elders, youngers, and all. So all of us are in two of the three categories. You mightn't be an elder, but you might be younger. In fact, if you're not an elder, you are a younger. But we're all in the all. So he says, the elders are to do something in particular. Now, who are the elders? Now, we just don't know whether or not Peter means elders in a formal sense. Some of you would have grown up or uh, have gone to churches which have a formalised eldership and you actually would call people elders. I mean, one of the odd things about the Mormon church is you meet these young guys called, this is going to sound rude and it's not reminiscent of Phil's talk. First Mormon elder I met was named literally Elder Blockhead. And uh, I didn't know there was such a name, but in America, all things are possible, right? <laughs> but I remember when I met these guys on a train in Sydney, I said, oh, isn't that funny you both got the same name? And, and then, oh, oh, okay, oh, elder, you know, because they're about 12 years of age, so it was hard to see why they were, who they were elder then. But th they had that name in terms of it's a rank, and that's fair enough. There's a certain level of leadership, and that's where the word um, Presbyterian comes from. That comes directly from the Greek word for elder. Or is he just speaking about people who've had more birthdays? I think he's probably talking more in that sense, but he may be talking about the formalised elders because his contrast to the elders is the youngers. 
So he seems to have divided the people of God into those who he thinks are elders and those who are youngers. And all of us would fall into, well, you might, it depends on how old the people you're with. See, some of the members of our church who are, um, go down to Goodwin or are members that live at Goodwin Village, right, they sometimes joke about being in the youth group because they're only about 80. Right? So in that context, they're kids because right? some of the people are substantially uh, more mature. But here I think he's talking about those who simply had more birthdays, the, the older people in the church, those who are more mature. Right? And this was a culture that respected age, where our culture tends to be a culture that tends not to really deeply in a practical way. The elders. And what does he say to those who are elders? So if you're amongst those who you think you're a fairly mature Christian and you're pretty old, uh, wise, what's the command? I urge you, elders... Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, and not by domineering, but by being an example. So if you're amongst those who are the older members of our church, or the more mature members, you're called on here not just to boss the church around, not to say, well, I've served God actively for 20 years, it's time to be in retirement. We are called on to shepherd the flock, that is to take the concern for sheep that a good shepherd would, uh, exercising oversight, that is watching over the flock to make sure it's okay and working out what needs to be done to help. It's not a passive oversight. It's watching so you can say, oh, blimey, that, that person needs help. Uh, that, that person's getting too close to the edge or something like that. I'll go and help. It's that sort of real care that looks at keeping the person safe and bringing them to thrive in their life with God. Shepherd the flock. Don't bully the flock. Don't try and domineer that the flock will do what you want. And this, this never happens at St. Matt's. But it, that does happen at some churches, that the older people in the church sort of think that they should, things should be done the way they want them done, the music that they want, the translation of the Bible that they like, uh, all sorts of things. Now, that's to completely, it's almost to show that you, you may have lots of birthdays, but you're not mature. Because the, the attitude of the older people in the people of God is that we shepherd, we, we, we're looking not to have things done our way. And, and I think some people think it's at Matt's, everything gets done the way anyone says, you are kidding me. There's all sorts of things that I would do differently if, if this was my church, but it ain't my church as we know. As it says, shepherd what? The flock of God. But God's people, not my people, so I don't get to do whatever I want. We're trying to work out what, what do we think would be best for, the, for us, for the flock. We consult, we read, we study. But that's, that's the thing to see. If you're amongst the old ones, there's a very clear command to you. You are to not just be there or be passive, but you are to be caring, like a, like a diligent nurse, watching, seeing what needs to be done next. A responsibility rather than privilege. Let's move on. The second group of people, the youngers, the rest of us. Right? Interesting what, and this is where the Bible is so offensive to us, to our culture. It is, as we've said, it's offensive to every culture in different ways. God's ways are his, not ours. What about the younger ones? Verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders can't be serious, can you? But that's what it says. The older people are to be caring, shepherding, not bossing. 
What do the younger people do? They are to place themselves under their wisdom and leadership. Right? That's hard to do. Because uh, there's a natural sense when we're young that we can see things clearly. And often, frankly, let's face it, often younger people do see things. We get, we get misty-eyed and our rut becomes so deep as we get older. Sometimes we don't hear the scriptures. And sometimes a young person goes, what about this? Oh, okay. Yeah, let's, let's try and put that into practice. So there's things to be learned as we look in a few seconds. But what it's calling on the young people to do is to place themselves under the legitimate wisdom and authority of those who are older than them. Now, as we looked at with, with other areas of authority, because the Bible is completely unafraid to say we should be placing ourselves under authority, and we do it all the time, don't we? If, if a policeman turns up at an intersection and the lights have turned out, they will, I don't know if they still wear the white gloves they used to when I was a kid, which is nice that you could see them, and that they, they put their hand up and people stop. You submitted to their authority. You mightn't have been conscious of it. Even those people with those little lollipops, unfortunately, they're not real lollipops, the stop-go sort of things. People, you, you submit yourself to their authority. It's what you do. Makes society work far, far better. I'm not quite sure what to do when you pull in, as I did the other day, and someone had put some of those witches' hats in public car spots. And I was with my wife. She's slightly more law-abiding. I said, well, I'm going to move that one of those things. Right? Why shouldn't I? You don't, you, you don't own spots just because you happen to have gone down to Kmart and bought yourself a few witches' hats. Right? What gives them the right to say that's ours? They're not even here. That's different. I didn't do it. I submitted to my wife's wisdom at that point. But, but it's simply saying that there is a legitimate authority. And look, I look back at some arguments I had with churches when I was much, much younger. We had a church that needed to replace the roof. It was in a wealthy part of Sydney. And they were going to, I think it was Slate or something from Wales. They were going to, it, was, it was going to cost a bazillion dollars. It's a very beautiful old church. And I brought this idea to the annual general meeting. Why don't we buy that sort of, I, I looked up the word, that sort of see-through, what's that word? It's, you know, sort of roofing material, make it with see-through, like corrugated iron, but it's corrugated something. I said, well, what? Asbestos, yeah, that'd be excellent. Right? <laughs> Let's put that on the roof. Costs almost nothing. It'll lessen the electricity bill. It was a flippant brainwave. I made the comment at the annual general meeting. And they moved on. Right? Now, I'm kind of glad they moved on. But there are other suggestions I've made when I was younger that I think, no, I think that wasn't a bad idea. But I placed myself, you know. But that's what we're called on to do, not, not to be arrogant. In fact, that brings us to the next point immediately, doesn't it? Look at what it says to all of us. Whether you're in the elder category and wise and mature, or whether or not you're brand fresh and new, with all the freshness and insight that comes with younger people, Verse 5, second half. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Why should I do that? I don't feel like doing that. Because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves. Now, so all of us, whether you're the oldest, wisest person in the building, or whether or not the, the youngest person has only just become a Christian yesterday, and if that's you... Praise God for that. All of us are to clothe ourselves with humility. This is a common way the Bible speaks. Colossians and Romans will speak it. Clothe yourself, and it will often use this word humility. And that's it's this, this fine-looking coat I've got, chosen by my fashion coordinator, Alison. She's um, lucky. 
People like dressing Ken dolls, but a chubby Ken doll, they're hard to find. They don't make many of those. So, so she, she chooses this. I clothed myself with that is, I made a decision I will wear the new coat. Right? Uh, I could have worn my old suit or all sorts of things. I made a choice. This is what, and what it says, make a choice to be humble. You don't have to pray that God would make you humble and wait until you become humble. That's a good thing to do as well. You choose, you put it on, humility. That is, you choose to relate from underneath people rather than over the top of them, not domineering them, controlling them in a hundred different ways that people can do. But we choose, okay, I'm going to live humbly. What does that mean? Well, as many of you know, humility was never a virtue until Christianity popped up. Uh, Macquarie University, Ancient History Department, has done some really serious study on this. Humility was what slaves did. No one was ever told to be humble. Slaves just were humble because that's where they belonged. Servile, yes sir, no sir, what do you want me to do sir, that sort of thing. They had no rights at all. But then suddenly, in a very short period, suddenly there were these writings in in the ancient Roman and Greek world where, where humility was a virtue. And they were crystal clear, that ancient history department, that it comes from this, the Christian virus, where you've got the king of kings living as a foot-washing servant. Right? The king of kings who says, I'm amongst you as one who serves, not like one who sits at the table. He says, if you want to be great, be a slave of all. Right? This is what Jesus says, and that's what he shows by his cross. He dies the most revolting death the Romans had devised. So that suddenly humility bubbles up from almost nowhere, it's in, but directly from Jesus. We're called to be humble. That is, I am your servant. And that, it mightn't be obvious, but that is actually how I see myself. I'm here, I'm, I'm here for you, right? to, to do what I can to be a blessing to you. Right? I'm, I'm your servant. I, I think I shared once we had... when we. Moving from one church to another in Sydney, that they got some uh, people to pack our stuff up, and um, these ladies came in to, to pack up the books, which was great. Uh, and uh, and I said to them, "Oh, isn't this lovely? You're servants." They said, "We are not. We're not servants." I said, "Sorry, I thought I'm not going to have an argument with them, but just because I've been hanging out with Jesus, servant is a is a position of honour and nobility. In our society, it's not. We are to be humble." Right? before each other. We're to be humble before two, well, one, one, one person and then a bunch of others. Look at verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you. Right? So that's what it's saying, friends, is we are to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand that is saying, okay, I, you are wiser. It's right that I obey you. It's right that I seek your pleasure, not my own. I, I will live that the way that Jesus lived. Not my will, but yours be done. That's what Jesus said, and that's how we live. And I say to him, okay, I'm under your mighty hand. How do you want me to live? To place myself under my brothers and sisters. We are a servant community. So the job is not to do as little as possible, but do as much as we can within the limitations that we all have. So there's a final word to the elders, to the youngers, and to all of us, to be humble. And then there's the wise commands, of which the first one is the way of wisdom, which is to be humble before each other. And let me just uh, see if I can get click, 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 click. 
This, I think, is one of the best examples of humility I've ever heard. Because people, humility is not so, oh, yes, I'm so, I'm, so, I'm so terribly awful at everything. I'm such a failure. I'm, so, I'm such a nothing. That's not humility. Often that's just another way to be self-centred, to keep talking about how, how you know, pathetic you are. So everyone goes, oh, no, 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 you're terrific. But, uh, this bloke, Carl Lewis, uh, a number of um, experts in the area of athletics reckon he was probably the Olympian of the 20th century with the number of things that he won in various areas. There's a great moment. Carl Lewis was um, a Christian man, apparently, and there's a time when he won all those gold medals, and he turned up to his press conference, like all the other Olympic athletes would, to be interviewed with his medals on. But many of the American journalists hated Carl Lewis, and here's why, apparently, um, because he was the first black athlete that said to journalists, if you want my time to write your article, right, if you want my time to make money, you'll pay for my time, exactly as you do the white athletes, baseball players, footballers, runners, all the white athletes would be paid, but he was the first one who said, you kidding? Right? You, and so they hated him, right? Uh, pushing up against that sort of racism. But he comes in with his four medals and one of the journalists said, uh, Lewis, we thought you were a Christian. Aren't Christians supposed to be humble? This looks like a bit of an ego trip to me. And, which I thought was a nasty piece of work because all the other athletes who hadn't got quite as many as him came with all their medals. And Lewis came back with a brilliant reply. Maybe he knew it was coming. Maybe he's just a genius. And he said, he said this, at the moment, I'm the fastest man on the earth. But I'm under no illusion about where the ability comes from and who should get the ultimate praise. That's beautiful, isn't it? He's not bullying on, oh, no, I'm not very good, really, just everyone else had a bad day, right? But he's thinking, I am the fastest man on the earth. That's not bragging, it's just a, it's a provable fact. But then he said, you know why? Him. That's where the credit goes, because that's where the ability comes from. That's what humility is like. It's not obsessed with itself. It's obsessed with others. And God first, another second. I do like this little thing. It's got a, a level of threat in it. See, what it says is, God is opposed to the proud. He's not impatient. He's happy to wait to bring people down if they need to be brought down. He is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he will exalt you at the right time. Right? Uh, but place yourself there. That's what wisdom does, under the hand of God. That, I think, is probably the central verse, that we are to humble ourselves. Right? Therefore, we'll listen to what he says about being an elder, we'll listen to what he says about being younger, and all sorts of things. A proud person doesn't listen to God. See, you don't have to be a loud, obnoxious, up-the-front person to be proud. You can be a quiet person, quite shy, and be brimming to the, to the absolute overflow with pride, because it's your opinion that matters. And at times you'll even work out ways to explain away the scriptures, because I know. You can be, as I say, you can be quite quiet and yet willing to be arrogant, your opinion over other people's opinions, uh, your way over other people's ways. The central verse is, let's humble ourselves under God and therefore humble ourselves before others. He then says something peculiarly useful for sheep. This is another of his wise commands in verse 7. 
Cast all your anxieties upon him. Cast, you know, we do that with fishing, don't we? Cast, right? And it's throwing something away from yourself, right? So you will be anxious. Human beings are anxious, have always been. Well, not always. You know, after you get past Genesis 3, we live with anxiety and fear. And with good reason. It keeps us alive sometimes. Sometimes it can kill us. Anxiety, remember, is sort of unfocused fear. Remember, if I pull a gun on you, you're not anxious, you're frightened. But what you spend with a lot of life is anxiety, the sort of the general sense of, oh, how this is going to work out. And it can be over a whole series of things. And what, what this verse says is, you know what sheep should do? Because sheep are anxious creatures. I, I think I've shared with you, I, I, you know, I used to think sheep were just pathetic, stupid beasts. Then I met this guy who was the head of the vet faculty at Sydney University. He was a sheep farmer by birth and, and family lineage and is back on the sheep farm. Um, he said, no, Ian, they're not stupid, really. They're a lot more stupid animals than sheep. Oh, I, I respect Reuben. I want to humble myself under his opinion. But there's a part of him, no, nah, I think they're stupid. But he says, what they are is they're anxious. They're fearful. And that's why they do dumb stuff altogether, because they want to stick together. Right? And they're anxious. And so it's, it's very appropriate to a group of sheep. So what do you do with your anxiety? Because here's what happens. When your anxieties or your addictions are challenged, you can often behave quite badly. And I don't just mean chemical addictions or alcohol, etc. But any, so any part of your life that you think, oh, I must have that, when that gets challenged, that's when humans can behave badly. And so if you're anxious... Um, there's good, what, what, what am I to do with that? I'm, to, I'm given, cast, give it to God. Let him know about it and ask him to manage it. Right? Ask him to take care of it. Because it says wonderfully, he cares about you. So there's the mighty hand of God in verse 6 and then the caring heart of God in verse 7. That person you can trust. But trust is a thing we actually learn to do. Right? You learn to trust God as you, as you get to know him. The better you know him, the easier it is to trust him. When you start out, it's quite hard often, particularly if you've been betrayed by many other people. But here he's saying, cast your anxieties. And I, some years ago, I had a little bit to do for, for about a year with a guy who was the senior policeman who oversaw the security of Sydney with the 2000 Olympics. It's fascinating talking to him because he said that he thinks God answered a number of prayers because he said there were a couple of terrorist things. One of them, they actually placed a bomb in a situation. It didn't go off. He said that it was quite scary. Don't, don't relax. Next time there's an Olympics in Sydney, there probably won't be so much terrorism going on. But people asked him, how do you stay so calm when you're responsible? Like if something had gone wrong, hundreds, perhaps thousands could have died. He said, I remind myself I'm a zebra, not a donkey. We went, oh, okay, moving on. Next question. That's helpful. Because he said zebras are not, they're not designed for bearing loads. You never see them tamed carrying loads. Donkeys, on the other hand, are terrific for bearing loads. But zebras can't do it. It's not just that they're badly behaved. And he said, I'm a zebra, not a donkey. So when I feel a burden on my back, I, I take it to the one who can carry it. And I cast my burdens upon him. Uh, so that's the, that's the wisdom. So be careful that you're humble. And therefore, don't carry your burdens on your own, but commit them to God. Um, there's a cute uh, little thing that we want to put the next picture up that may be helpful. I, I think that's quite a helpful little quote there. Now, 
Let's get to the last bit of advice. It's really a crucial insight. And at this point, the Bible's getting really, really practical at the point when some people will be tempted to laugh at it or to smirk on the inside. And it wants to tell you about a real danger. Now, of course, in our culture, there's a bit of a thing about making people feel frightened. Um, uh, you know, optimism and hope is better than fear. Yeah, I get that. But not really. It depends if the fear is real. I've never minded the people who ring the shark alarm when I was growing up at a beach. I'd much rather someone frighten me with the fact that they know there's a shark in the water than go, ah, oh, we don't want to frighten him. And Jesus is quite happy to speak of fear. There are things that we ought to be frightened of and things that if we're frightened of them, we can then deal with them. But what he says here is, let me read you the verse. Many of you will know this verse well. It's a very important verse. Verse 8, be sober and alert. Sober here meaning the opposite of being drunk. You know, when you, if you've read about people getting drunk, because uh, you know, I'm sure none of us have been drunk here, but, you know, um, or whatever, that you just can't think clearly. So many references I wrote for boys who went to that school I was a chaplain at, you know, the story would, would start, well, so what happened was we, we went out with a few mates and we had a few drinks, and, like, oh, and then disaster happens, because you do dumb stuff, right? Fun stuff, dumb stuff. Your capacity to make good decisions is over at that point. He said, no, no, don't be, have a sober mind, clear thinking. Be on the alert for what? Here it is. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's what it does. You have an enemy. And I want you to take this on board because you do. You have an enemy now. Oh, let me just go to this next one. You have an enemy. Problem for us is we've watched so many beautiful documentaries where you kind of feel sorry for the lion if it doesn't get to kill the antelope. Ah, it's going hungry for another day. And that's why one of the problems that that people have in the national parks in various parts of the world, tourists are being killed because they think wild animals are kind of cute, really. And anyhow, I had a real cuddly little lion for my daughters, and they were kind of cute. But lions are, are, they are terrifying, right? Remarkably powerful beasts. And he says, you have an enemy who is a lion. He is on the prowl, seeking to just nibble a finger or two off. He's not greedy. Um, No, no, he wants to devour you. Now, if you're humble, you go, right. I haven't taken that all that seriously. If you're an arrogant, silly person, you (laughs) no, no, no. Um, We have an enemy, and they're scary. But if you're scared of him, or take him seriously at least, you have no need to ultimately fear him. But if you won't take him seriously, he will devour you. He'll have the last word on your life. I think I've shared with you once the story when Alison and I took um, our dog, Ricky, Wonder Dog, to um, uh, the dam named after our very own Liz Scrivener, the Scrivener Dam. And um, we're just going for a bit of a walk next to that little river. And suddenly, from the zoo across the way, we heard a distant from a lion. It was great. I mean, ooh, and um, uh, it was interesting. Ricky had never heard a lion before, as far as we can tell. Uh, and he stopped. Ears. And there was another roar. It was distant, but it was decidedly a roar. It was funny as a circus. He bolted up the hill 
to stand between Alison and I, as if we were going to do him any good at all. Frankly, if push came to shove, I'd have thrown him into the line. So we could have, you know, but um, I didn't tell him that, you know. But it was just interesting. He just knew this was a, this, whatever this thing was that he'd never seen, because he wasn't brought up in Africa or anything like that, but he, you know, it was a thing to be frightened of. What Peter wants you to know, because he experienced it, Jesus spoke about the way that Satan was going to deal with Peter, and he did, that there is a, you have an enemy. We have an enemy. Because at this point, he's mostly speaking about the flock as well, not just the individual. Now, there's a, an old man who, when he did his PhD at Oxford University, spent quite a bit of time studying, what does the Bible teach about the devil? And it was interesting. He said the three things that the Bible most often goes on about the devil is, how does he do his work, his destructive work? False teaching. Right. He, he, he is the source of, and the New Testament, he is the source of false teaching about God. It's one of the reasons why Christians have for a couple of thousand years now, said the creed to remind us of the basic things of Christianity. The way that the devil does his work is through what looks interesting and removes some of the difficult parts of Christianity by false teaching. Uh, we see that in Genesis 3. He is a, well, to quote Jesus in John 8, the devil is a liar and the father of lies, and when he lies, he speaks according to his nature. Jesus says he is a liar in John 8, and he is a, do anyone else know the, 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 the next term he uses? A murderer. It's exactly what Peter's saying. How does the devil do his murdering? By lying. Right? False teaching. That's why you need to be careful of who you listen to. And if you hear a new, fresh idea, particularly if it's an idea, they go, oh, thank God, I didn't want that to be true. Right? You, you need to come to some of the elders in the church and say, is that true? Because there's, there are plenty of, I mean, frankly, yesterday I thought at the sin I heard, I heard people, one guy say stuff that was just false, right, from the platform, and fairly seriously false. Now, I, I want to go and read what he said, if, if I can get a copy of it, but there's false teaching all over the place. The second thing, the way that the devil works is through, and this is what Peter's mostly about, persecution. Right? He calls you to suffer because you're a Christian. Not the ordinary suffering of life, toothaches and things like that. But the suffering that you could avoid. If you just be either ashamed of Jesus or his words. That's what Jesus says. If you're ashamed of me and my word. I think in our culture, the temptation is to be ashamed of his word and his teaching. Uh, and to want to avoid it. You can avoid this persecution. That's what the devil wants you to do. That's what Peter did briefly on the Thursday night before Jesus was put to death. He feared the persecution he was going to get for aligning himself with Jesus. And the third way that the devil seems to work, according to the New Testament, is division. To divide the people of God. And often he divides the people of God through his first tool, which is lies. And, of course, he is the tempter. So what, what, what we're told here is take seriously our enemy because he takes you seriously. And his intention, we're told very clearly, is to devour you and us, to tear us to pieces. So we're told in verse 9, resist him. It's interesting how James 4 says almost exactly the same set of words. I read that this morning in my Bible. That James, it's, just, it's the same sort of thing. You know, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him, firm in your faith. Because the thing above all that the evil one wants to destroy is your faith. 
your confidence in God and therefore in his word. This is his work. And we're told this crucial insight for the sheep to realise that there is a lion about and he's experienced. We, we had a lovely lady in our church, I, I miss her, still called Lilius. Many of you will remember Lilius. She was an, a warrior. Uh, she was a great prayer. And she's dead now, sadly. But a couple of years ago, we used to have these prayer meetings out in that room there when it had windows and a doorway on Monday. Now meets in here on Monday at lunchtime. She was, she was regular. And she told us one time she had, she didn't know quite, it was kind of like a vision, but it wasn't really a vision, but she just had this picture or something of the devil standing outside the glass doorway with a large knife or machete thing waiting for an opportunity to get in. She wasn't claiming it was a vision from God. She didn't know what to make of it. But she shared it. And within a month or so after that, certainly in my brief time here at St Matt's, we had the biggest eruption of trouble we'd ever had. It could easily have done much more damage than it did. And I think Lilius was right. Don't forget, friends, also, that the way that the evil one often works, in fact, his preferred method of work, is through Christians. Peter is the first of the disciples to work out, oh my goodness, you're not a prophet. You're the Christ. You're the king. You're not a messenger. You're the king who sends the messengers. Matthew 16, and Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father did. He says, God has revealed this to you. Blessed are you. What are the next words Jesus says to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Because Peter then begins to say to Jesus, no, 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 you don't need to die. You can just be the king and not die. No, 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 Jesus, right? Uh, No one understands Jesus other than he comes to die. He's the king who does his great work through dying. So Jesus goes from saying to Peter, blessed are you. God has done a great thing in you to saying, your mouth is now the mouth through which Satan is speaking to me, trying to get me not to go to the cross. Brothers and sisters, that is a helpful lesson for all of us, that we need to be aware that sometimes evil, false teaching and lies or division and trouble comes into a church through lovely Christian people. Don't be that person. And if someone is doing that to you, warn them. I've been beautifully ticked off by some lovely Christians. I won't bore you with the story. This lady on the phone one time just really shut me down. This is some years ago. And because I was causing trouble. I was, it was true, I thought, what I was saying. But it was just dividing a Christian community. And this woman, quite rightly... She's a gentle soul, but she made it very clear to me, basically, and shut up and stop sinning. Uh, It was very helpful. Well, friends, that's the crucial insight that he wants us to understand. That's why we need to be together, looking after each other, caring for each other, responsible to each other, meeting together to read God's word and to remember, to be humble and to stay humble. But he says we need to be awake. And I do want to ask you, do you take this seriously? The reality of the attack on the people of God, the danger we live in. Because you are not safely in heaven until you're safely in heaven. The devil will keep... You may be 100 years old and following Jesus for forever. No, the devil will still work on you. He'll still still have a bit of a sniff. He's happy to eat old lamb as much as fresh lamb. Um, But that's what we're told here. And the beautiful thing... There's so much more here, but we won't do it. The beautiful thing is that Jesus is called in verse 4, he's the chief shepherd. He's the real shepherd. Right? 
He's the one that we can trust. And I think that's what this little picture's supposed to be. That's, uh, I think that's what this picture's saying, right? We actually have the great line as our shepherd, right? He is the one who'll protect us from the straggly ones, right? So we can say, the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. I'll fear no evil. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd and he will take us safely home. So, brothers and sisters, I hope that you know, you've heard the word of not just Peter but of God through Peter and that you will be humble. Keep an eye on yourself with the question of arrogance in all its various forms and to be awake. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, your word is so rich. There is so much here for us. Thank you for the warning that we do have an enemy who is real. Uh, Please forgive us for the times when we've been arrogant towards you and arrogant towards your people. Help us to grow in our willingness to be the servant and to be the pupil of you. Um, And help us, Lord, particularly those of us who are old, older, mature, to take the attitude of the shepherd caring for the sheep of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be willing to learn and serve each other in humility. We ask for this blessing in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.